Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. You're listening to Money Talks on Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on the world of business. I'm Rachna Sharnbog, The Economist finance editor, and this week we're looking at how the coronavirus pandemic is disrupting the home front. Only about a third of American workers can effectively work from home and they earn about 45% of America's wages. We'll meet some of the firms that were born ready for the remote revolution. The whole world is going to have to learn to embrace remote work now. You know, world 1.0 is over, world 2.0 is coming. Will this experience change working life forever? A few of the companies I talk to, they have optional offices. You can come in if you feel lonely or if you have a special project. And a day in the life of our Bartleby columnist on why merging home and work is not so easy. Start to miss regular meetings, a concept previously beyond imagination. The beginning of April marks the start of a new tax year. But with the outbreak of COVID-19, this is a year like no other. In America, in the week to March 21st, a record 3.28 million people filed for unemployment benefits. On Monday, Macy's, America's biggest department store, announced it was furloughing 130,000 staff. Many people still working are being asked to work from home. But chaos in the jobs market is spilling over into housing insecurity. On the 1st of April, rent, mortgage payments and bills fall due nationwide. It should also be payday. But with such massive disruption, many people are now facing bills without having received a paycheck. In a normal month, workers earn about two-thirds of the total economic output of America, and that's usually a trillion dollars. Alice Fullwood is our Wall Street correspondent. And those that will be worst off are those that have seen the sort of big shock to their income. So Alice, just how big a bill is due on the 1st of April? Well, to figure this out, you need to do sort of a few back-of-the-envelope calculations. So the total value of real estate in America is around $50 trillion, of which $34 trillion is residential and the rest, about $16 trillion, is commercial. And you can bracket both of those properties into owner-occupied dwellings, in which case people usually have a mortgage payment due, or rented ones, in which case rent will be due on the 1st of April. And it will probably be due to a landlord who is likely to have a mortgage payment of his or her own as well. Around two thirds of households in America live in owner-occupied dwellings, and they have about $10 trillion worth of residential mortgages. Most companies lease their buildings, but they'll often lease from a landlord with a mortgage. So there are around $3 trillion worth of commercial mortgages. And if you make some assumptions using average interest rates and rental yields in America over the past five or so years, you can back out a number for the total bill payment that's probably due on April 1st. And my estimate is that there is a bill payment of $75 billion of residential mortgages due and around $15 billion of commercial mortgages due. At the same time, households owe around $30 billion in rent and companies might owe as much as $40 billion in commercial rent. So if you add that all up, you reach a total number that's around 
around $160 billion. Alice, those are some huge numbers. Who do you think is likely to be worse off during this pandemic? Will it be those with rent payments due or homeowners with mortgages to pay? Yeah, so it's important to put that number into context because obviously people do expect their wages to sync up with this payment. And we saw huge unemployment claims last week. We do get jobs data later this week as well. And the more information we get, the more it will be revealed how many people are in trouble. But um, there was a study at the University of Chicago that showed that actually only about a third of American workers can effectively work from home and they earn about 40 percent of America's wages. So there's sort of a serious risk that a lot of people and businesses are sort of facing this bill without that usual income flow. And I think the worst off will be will be those that have sort of very high rent or mortgages to pay relative to their income and those that have seen their income fall most significantly. Talking about renters, let's then move on to the impact on landlords. So a lot of people who are due to pay their mortgages will probably be relying on income from their tenants. How big a problem do you think that could cause? About a third of households are renters in America. And you could assume maybe that their landlords have taken out a third of those residential mortgages, in which case, you know, they're on the hook for a significant portion of the payment due on April 1st. And you hear anecdotally people, you know, calling up their landlords saying, you know, I can't make my rent this month. And their landlord saying, well, then I can't make my mortgage payment. And I think that those that are going to be most squeezed are the people who find it most difficult to get relief at any point along this chain. So if a landlord can get a hiatus or postponement of his mortgage payment, then it's easier for him to postpone rent. And that levels the problem up to the banks and those that own mortgages. And you're seeing those players as well trying to make it as easy as possible for landlords to give relief to renters. So Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac are saying that they are postponing foreclosures, postponing the date at which you have to report a mortgage as past due from very quickly to several months down the pipeline. So as long as people up the chain can help delay the payments, then you should be able to give assistance to renters as well. But it all just depends on who has the least flexibility. Alice, we've seen a huge increase in jobless claims in the past week. Last week, we also saw the federal government passing an economic stimulus programme to try and ease the economic burden of the pandemic. How well do you think this huge package can address these problems of households facing bills potentially without receiving income? It does two things to try and target these groups that are having to go without income. And one is the expansion of unemployment benefits, expanding the group of workers that is eligible to collect that to people who've just their hours reduced or extending the length of time you can claim unemployment benefits for, raising the percentage of wages that are replaced. All of these things will help people who've been hurt by the epidemic. But that's a potentially slower channel. You hear a lot of stories of people struggling to sign on to unemployment benefits because offices have been so overwhelmed. And the really critical thing is that people get money quickly. And that's where the one-off payment of $1,200 to households that earn less than $75,000, which sort of scales up as you go beyond that threshold, will come in helpful because it will be paid hopefully within the next few weeks. And so you might only need to see landlords or banks pushing back mortgage and rent deadlines by a few weeks before people get that payment through and get signed on to unemployment benefits. It targets the problem reasonably well, that you need cash quickly and that you need cash to go to the right people. The question now is just how long this will go on for, how long the financial system can continue to cope without the sort of regular flow of payments and whether this relief can be extended if needed. 
And on that question, let's think about the worst case scenario here. If people struggle to make their repayments, trace that through the financial system for us. What are the knock-on consequences? So the worst case scenario for homeowners, people that have mortgages, is obviously foreclosure. And the worst case scenario for renters is eviction. And you've seen efforts by lawmakers across the country, but particularly in states that have been hardest hit, like New York or California, to forestall those worst case outcomes. So there's been a moratorium on evictions for 60 days in New York and a moratorium on foreclosures as well for up to 90 days in California. And so you're seeing people trying to prevent that worst case outcome. The question now is just how long the system can cope with payments not flowing as normal. Most of these measures have been put in place for two to three months at the most. And if the pandemic stretches beyond that, then we'll be in more uncharted territory. And you'll have to see people thinking of new solutions or extending these measures even further. Alice Fullwood, thank you very much. Thank you, Rachna. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. For those able to keep working during the lockdown, there's a different challenge. From one day to the next, millions of people have had to make the instant transition to working entirely remotely. The video calling software Zoom has become the most downloaded free app in multiple countries. Its stock has surged more than 100% since the end of January. But for some companies, working remotely was already a way of life. So-called distributed startups are born officeless. Fully distributed startups, meaning kind of companies that that don't have a headquarter and the employees live all over the world, are actually pretty old. They're as old as the internet. Our US technology editor, Ludwig Ziegler, has been investigating how these companies work and what other businesses could learn from them. So the first users of the internet, the academics and kind of the researchers, they figured out they could do a lot of things by just sending out emails or files. And out of that grew the open source movement. So open source is a certain type of software It's written by groups of volunteers spread around the world, and those organizations were the first distributed startups. And out of that now grew a whole series of startups that based their business on open source software. But for those not working in open source, why would companies choose not to have an office? It's a question of costs. In Silicon Valley, for instance, rent is really expensive. It's very expensive and hard to hire good people. So what startups often do these days is they're not created in the proverbial garage, but as a group, a distributed group spread uh, around the US, around the world. Many of them, once they are successful, once they found their product, they become a real company and they have a headquarters, often in Silicon Valley. But many these days choose to stay distributed. I spoke to Nat Friedman. He's the CEO of a company called GitHub, probably the biggest distributed company in the world. It employs about 2,000 people and hosts millions of open source projects. And that says that it's been a huge advantage for them to be remote. We live in a world where talent is broadly distributed. There are incredibly talented people all over the world, but opportunity is not. And through the internet, we can actually make opportunities, make companies available to anyone anywhere. As a distributed company, we can hire a talented person wherever they live on the earth. And 
that allows us to tap into a new talent pool that we'd otherwise not have access to. So do you think that the shift to working remotely due to the lockdown is going to be a permanent shift? The whole world is going to have to learn to embrace remote work now. You know, world 1.0 is over, world 2.0 is is coming. And that means really that every company and every organization is going to have to learn to act more like open source communities have been behaving for the last 25 years. What are your tips to conventional companies being forced now to do this? So I think, you know, two or three key takeaways. First, you have to go all in. It's really difficult to be the only remote person on a team of 10 people where You know, nine folks are in the office in a room and you're just trying to dial in on the conference call. Everyone needs to dial in. You have to create a level playing field. Now, I think the second thing is uh, you have to have a culture that knows how to write things down. You have to have a writing culture to be successful as a remote organization. So how can you actually capture your thoughts, write them down? And, and good writing is good thinking. And so it actually will improve the quality of the thought in the organization. It also enables asynchronous work. As a result. And so if you have people spread across a few time zones, not every conversation has to take place synchronously. The third thing that it does is it forces you to be explicit about your communication. Maybe you're used to managing by walking around. Well, that's not going to work anymore. So you're going to have to set up a system for communication. What are your stand-ups? How are you communicating broadly to the company? How are you creating a way for people to have casual connections? Are you doing you know, AMAs or, or Q&As in your company where people can have a chance to, to ask questions or weigh in on things? How do you feel about emoji? Emojis are very important. We are an incredibly emoji-heavy culture at GitHub. It's a way to, to communicate tone. It's a way to communicate personality. Um, if uh, you know, your, your team may have its own personalized emojis, and in a way, the most used personalized emojis in your team reflect the personality of your company. So that's something to pay attention to. This sounds to me like it's great for workers, but, but what about managers? Is, is their life tougher? Remote work places a premium on communication skills. And so I think managers who have excellent communication skills will thrive. And so I think you know this will raise the bar for managers. It also places a premium on managers to trust their employees, treat them like adults, and trust them to do their work. And I think the great advantage of that is that you should measure employees by output and not activity. Right. I mean, I, I should be valued for you know not how many hours my butt is in the seat in the office, but for the work that I'm actually producing. So, so these are huge changes in, in terms of kind of how you manage companies. Do you think it, it'll be very difficult for conventional companies to adapt? I think a lot of companies are going to find that it's a little easier than they thought. Uh, they're going to discover that the tools are good. The tools exist, uh, that there are actually advantages to their employees. One of the challenges, of course, is. To be a remote employee, you actually have to have a place in your house where you can work. And especially now with kids home from school, it's super distracting for people. I'd say most companies are finding that the productivity of their teams, especially folks who have dependents at home that they're now caring for, is affected. But I do think that a lot of companies are discovering, hey, this actually works. It's probably not the case that every company can be remote, uh, but probably many more can be remote than are remote. And that's going to be a business advantage for them, and they're going to take that with them coming out of this crisis. So Ludwig, that all sounds remarkably positive. Do you agree with Nat Friedman that distributed companies have the edge? Surely there are some downsides to being all remote. So in this case, startups are still, I think, more creative if, if they're in one room. If they're spread out, they, there's more friction. It takes longer to come to a decision, all that. That said, what uh, these distributed startups told me is that, yes, actually it's true, Startups tend to be more productive if the employees are all in one room. But at the same time, being remote allows you to hire the best talent around the world. Another serious issue is loneliness. I saw a kind of a, a recent survey of three and a half thousand remote workers. 
And that was at the top of, of the drawbacks they listed. One fifth said, 20% said loneliness is an issue. So what the distributed companies often do, they have all company, all hands meetings like two or three times a year where everybody comes together and they kind of spend a few days together and that kind of recharges their their batteries in a way. Many companies, including The Economist, are now being forced to try remote working. How many do you think are going to stick with it? That's really hard to say. I think a lot will go back to, to the old way of doing things. But they've kind of had their training run. And so they will kind of opt for more remote forms of working if possible. So, so they've kind of learned it. Some will say it's not for us. Others will say, yes, actually, the tools are not so bad. Let's do it. So I could imagine at The Economist, we have two big weekly meetings where all the journalists meet. Perhaps we will turn one of them on Friday into a remote meeting. Why not? So it sounds like there must be some kind of happy medium to be struck. Yes, that's certainly true. But it shouldn't look like, yeah, half of my workforce is is uh, on-site and the other half is, is remote. So it's going to be interesting how companies will innovate to create mixed teams. A few of the companies I talked to, they have optional offices. You can come in if you feel lonely or if you have a special project. So many interesting things to come, I think. A final question for you, Ludwig. We need to talk about emoji or or emojis. I don't know what the plural is. I think we do pretty well for written communication here at The Economist, but I'm still not sure how I feel about sending an emoji to the editor-in-chief. Do you think we should all become a little bit less straight-laced? I mean, we should do that anyway. But uh, uh, the interesting thing is emojis are important in, in distributed organisations, kind of to, to be more subtle in the way you communicate things you can't do in the written world, or which are more difficult. But at the same time, the CEOs who run them told me it's really important to be good wordsmith. The managers we know today, they, they're good speakers and that's how they lead in these distributed organisations. Good writing is actually very important. Well, with true gratitude, as communicated by a tiny pair of praying yellow hands, thank you for coming on the show. Thanks, Rajana. <laughs> The COVID-19 pandemic is bringing immense uncertainty to citizens, governments and the global economy. Economist Radio is drawing on the expertise of our international network of correspondents to report on the crisis. On the science... The more you understand about the mechanism of a virus, the more places that there are that you can glue it up. On the economics... The banks are in a really interesting position for this crisis because last time they were maybe the cause of turmoil and this time they could be one of the arms through which the impact of the crisis is dulled. And on the politics of COVID-19. Some worst case scenarios have a very large number of people dying. That is going to trigger very, very grave conversations about whose fault this is. For the latest on the pandemic and more, join us on Economist Radio. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Finally, here at The Economist, we've also had to make a quick transition to working from home. My studio is soundproofed with a blanket. Ludwig and Alice both called me from their wardrobes. And our editorial meetings have all gone entirely remote. Our Bartleby columnist, Philip Coggan, spent his time writing about the best ways of working. He thought all this would be a doddle. But it turns out working from home is not quite so easy. Wake up. It's seven o'clock on Tuesday the 31st of March. Listen to radio news full of government restrictions, disease numbers and tales of economic decline. Stop on the way to shower to wake up teenage daughter so she can get ready for school. Daughter tersely points out that her school has been closed for days. 7.20. Breakfast is a tricky decision 
Is the family closer to running out of milk and cereal or bread? Realise that the cat has only two food sachets left. 7.30. Email inbox consists almost entirely of companies explaining how they're coping with the pandemic. This includes every hotel and restaurant that ever took an online booking. 8 o'clock. Head for supermarket to pick up extra cat food. Shelves resemble a scene for the zombie apocalypse. Purchase tub of ice cream on grounds that the virus is a bigger threat to health than obesity. 8.30. Attempt to read company's disaster recovery policy. Hitherto had been more likely to pick up a newly discovered novel by Anne Rand. Can't make head nor tail of it. Beg daughter for help as she's actually heard of these apps. Think wistfully of the days when journalism mainly involved a typewriter, carbon paper and the telephone directory. <sighs> Nine o'clock. Check Twitter and news websites for virus developments on the grounds this is research. Disappear down rabbit hole for 45 minutes. 9.45. <coughs> Cough briefly. As paranoia sets in, check temperature. All fine. But then second thought, what if thermometer is broken? Wash hands while singing all of Bohemian Rhapsody. Galileo. 10.30. Time to dial into the editorial meeting. Realise cannot find phone number or meeting code. Send email to colleague who returns a WhatsApp message with the answer. But as that arrives on the phone I'm using, I have to hunt for pen and paper to write down the numbers. 10.35. Finally get through to meeting. Wonder about etiquette for conference calls taken at home. Is it okay to put the kettle on? Eat a biscuit. Mm, can you hear me? 10.45. Try to contribute. Realise phone is on mute. After two minutes, work out how to unmute phone. Alas, discussion has moved on. Mute again to avoid embarrassment. Start to miss regular meetings, a concept previously beyond imagination. 11.30 find Cat has sat on laptop and accidentally opened a whole bunch of tabs and typed random letters. If Cat does this long enough, could she write my entire column? 11.59. Think of virus-related joke. Noon. Tweet the joke. 12.01. Realise Quip was in terrible taste and hurriedly deleted. 12.15. Lunch dilemma. Eat perishable food before it goes off or non-perishable food which could be out of stock in the supermarket. Settle for ice cream on the grounds that should never have bought it in the first place. 1.30. Inbox now consists of pitches from two types of PR people. One group wants to highlight products that will make home working easier and would make a great column. The other lot wants to know whether The Economist would like to publish an article from their chief executive praising their own company. Hit delete button multiple times. 2.30. Consider working in a coffee shop as a break from the kitchen table. Remember that every coffee shop is now closed for business indefinitely. Four o'clock. Consider writing column that's not virus-related, but worry it might seem otherworldly. Five o'clock. Wonder whether the business editor would accept a column based on a home worker's diary. Estimate the odds to be rather long. And you can follow Phil's Bartleby column and much more at economist.com. If you're not yet a subscriber, go to economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for $12 or £12. That's all for Money Talks this week. 
Don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I'm Rachna Shanbog, and from my home office to yours, this is The Economist. <laughs>